while everybody is uh, finding their seat and getting settled, let me just remind you of a couple of things. The APAC conference had some really great speakers. Now, this is important because if we're going to support Israel, we have to know what the issues are. Some of these are educational. Some of these are inspirational. Uh, some of the stories that you can listen to uh, will just blow you away. The technological advances, uh, different things that they're doing around the world. Uh, Israel is still uh, following through the command of the Abrahamic covenant to be a blessing to the world. And it's just amazing some of the things that they do. Some of the other things that they uh, talk about have to do with strategic issues related to Iran, related to Syria, related to the threats that are going on. And so you can just go to their website, APAC.org, and a lot of these sessions that were live-streamed are also recorded. Um, one of the best speeches that you will listen to is Nikki Haley's speech yesterday, uh, last night, when she addressed the group. They almost wouldn't let her speak because they wouldn't stop clapping. They were... Uh, so thrilled with her, and I keep asking the question, well, are, are, are a lot of these Democrats getting the message that no Democrat president would ever appoint anyone like Nikki Haley to be the ambassador to the U.N.? And what she has done is to stand up for Israel and not let Israel uh, be bullied by these other nations in the UN. So I encourage you uh, to listen to these because you'll learn a lot. Uh, it's interesting, some of the breakout sessions were also live streamed and uh, they may be up there as well. So I encourage you to do that. The Chafer Conference starts this week. We have volunteer sign-up sheets. I think we have enough volunteers, but there are uh, also volunteers for bringing some different food other than cookies. Cookies are good, but there are some other things that need to be provided as well. And so sign up on those sign-up sheets uh, for those different food items. Pay attention to that. We have about six days to go, and we're uh, in business. So uh, please focus on that. Also, um, I think that I've heard that a lot of cookies are going to show up, so... Uh, we still probably need some. We have how many have signed up, Bryce? Do you know? 165. 165 signed ups for the conference. Now that includes a number of our own people and some others. And that reminds me, please register. That means Bryce, you registered? Am I? I'm not registered. Somebody needs to re <laughs> register me so I can get a name tag. One of the things we're doing with security, and just to make sure because we've got some security people working with us, is that if you're supposed to be here at the conference, you need to have a name tag. What? Cheryl has registered everybody in the church. Oh, okay. All the deacons and you and all the Okay. She takes care of all that. Okay, good, good. So we'll be, um, but that if you don't see, if you see somebody that doesn't have a name tag, then what you need to do is go up to them, say, hi, how are you doing? Notice you didn't have a name tag. Have you ever been here before? How did you find out about the conference? Where are you from? What church do you go to? Just being friendly and asking those kinds of questions. It's not a violation of privacy. It's security. Because if somebody starts, well, um, um, then you need to pay attention to that because maybe they are not here for the right reasons. So that's that's very important now 
Even on Sunday, you see somebody you don't know, walk up to them, welcome them, how you doing, good to have you here. Uh, Some of us are being taught that what we need to do uh, at church on Sunday morning is when, while most people are going to be shaking people's hands, glad you're here, how can I help you with your kids, what do you need, there's going to be some other key people who are going to be looking at visitors and thinking, why are you here? What's in that Bible case other than a Bible? What's that bulge on the side of your jacket? Is that just a little extra cherry pie, or is that uh, something a little more dangerous? So that's what security has come to in churches these days. It's being aware, especially of people you don't know. Now, there'll be a lot of people at the conference that none of us know. That's why it's important to have these name badges and for everybody to register that is coming to the conference so that uh, they can have a name badge. And if somebody doesn't have a name badge, just guide them to the right location, to the registration table, so that they can get that uh, information taken care of. But this is uh, uh, this is very, very important. And also remember, Daylight Savings Time jumps ahead this uh, coming Sunday morning at 0200, but you can set your uh, clocks ahead an hour before you go to sleep at night. And then um, details on the D.C. trip will be going out, more information going out once we get past uh, the Chafer Conference. I think that uh, covers most of the announcements. How do you spell that in How do you? What? AIPAC, American Israel Public Affairs Committee. AIPAC.org or .com. Either one. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're all uh, spiritually prepared to study the word. We are to worship the Lord through study of his word uh, by means of the spirit and by means of truth. Walking by the spirit can stop because we uh, choose to, and when we do that, when we stop walking by the Spirit, the default is a sin nature. And so when we're walking according to the sin nature, the way to recover is to confess sin, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together this evening to be encouraged, strengthened by your word, to be reminded that your word is accurate and that there's evidence of its truthfulness, its veracity. It is true because it is your word breathed out by God the Holy Spirit through the writers of Scripture being overseen in such a way that that which they recorded was without error. Father, as we study today, we're reminded you have a plan and a purpose And that plan and a purpose began uh, 
with the creation of man included his fall and your plan of redemption. And Father, as we study this passage this evening, it seems like just a a quick two or three notations, but it fits within a, a plan and a purpose that extends from the Old Testament into the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. So, Father, help us to understand the significance of this, that we might uh, be strengthened and encouraged in the Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Tonight we're going to study about something that was a big topic at the APAC National Policy Conference this year, and that is Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It, it, would, it takes a special kind of truth suppression, a special kind of denial of history and a special kind of distorted mentality to deny that Jerusalem has been the historic capital of of Israel, the historic capital of the Jewish state, and is the rightful capital of Israel, and that it has never been uh, a capital that was related or a city that was related to a people group known as Palestinians. In fact, if you really want to understand the topic, I encourage you to read a, an extensive tome called From Time Immemorial, written by a previously liberal journalist by the name of Joan Peters. It came out in the um, uh, mid-'80s. I believe it was around 1986. And she quotes enormous numbers of speeches and statements and diaries, letters, things of that nature written by Arab leaders in relationship to understanding who really owns the land. Where did these people come from that were called Palestinians? And she demonstrates historically that there's no such people group as Palestinians, that the name was imposed upon Israel um, by the Romans and by um, Emperor Hadrian, who, who, after defeating the uh, the Jews in the second Jewish revolt, which occurred, also known as the Bar Kokhba revolt, which occurred in 135, he was so irritated and aggravated with the with the Jews that he not only renamed Jerusalem after his family name and named it Aoli Capitolina, but he then went and destroyed evidence of the historic religious sites as much as he could, and built pagan temples on those sites. He built a temple to uh, Jupiter on the Temple Mount. He built a temple to uh, Athena on the site of the crucifixion. He built another temple on the site of the church where where they uh, understood that Jesus was born, which is now the site of the church of the Nativity. Uh, we can be grateful to him because he marked those sites for posterity. Otherwise, there'd probably be a Holiday Inn or something else on those sites and a McDonald's sitting there, and you uh, wouldn't have any sense whatsoever. A lot of times when folks go to Israel with me, they're a little off-put by the fact that you go into these churches and you have all the ritual and the smells and bells and everything else that goes on. But the reality is, is they have preserved these many, many places and the Orthodox Church owns a lot of this real estate, and that has made it possible to continue to mark these places because the Bible is a historical, 
uh, his, let's say it this way. The Bible is a history-based belief. It is not just a belief that is divorced from space and time, but it is based on uh, things that happened in history at specific locations, and you can go visit them. They're not just some made-up uh, location or some made-up story. You can actually go and see the places where Jesus went, where Jesus taught, where uh, Jesus slept, where Peter slept. You can see Peter's home in Capernaum. You can see all of these various places, and you can see, as we'll study tonight, when uh, David was going to attack Jebus, which is uh, the name for Jerusalem because of the Jebusites that lived there, he um, decided to have a sneak attack from inside the walls and to invade through the water system. And so he offered a challenge to his men that he would make uh, the top general, whoever could make it inside the city, up the water shaft. And that was done and accomplished by by Joab. And you can go look at at least two or three of the candidates for that water shaft today, any one of which uh, would have worked. So Jerusalem becomes the capital for David in Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 5. We've seen that in the first part of Second Samuel, chapters 2 through 10, God blesses David and unites and expands the kingdom. He labors in vain to build the house unless the Lord builds it. And the Lord, he is, David in this section is allowing the Lord to build his kingdom. He's not going to manipulate it and make it happen on his own. He will fail in chapters 11 through 20, and God will discipline him for his sins, but he doesn't lose his position. He doesn't lose the Abraham, I mean, the Davidic covenant. And in fact, God will turn cursing into blessing because David will turn back to God from his sin and God will forgive him. And then at the end, we'll see several episodes, six appendices that evidence the greatness of the Davidic covenant and the Davidic kingship. Okay, so in this chapter, we're, we are seeing how God gives David control over Jerusalem. Now, here's our map. David has been king in Hebron for seven and a half years. That is what we read in verse 5. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. This is a summary statement that gives us a foreshadowing of what the rest of the book is about. We have already seen that he has reigned over Hebron for seven and a half years, and now we will see his reign over the United Kingdom, over all of Israel and Judah over the next 33 years. In 2 Samuel 5, 6, the story continues, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. And they were thinking, David cannot come in here. And this is probably an accurate tra translation or understanding of the dialogue that is going on. It's The text is a little corrupted in the Hebrew. There are some alternate views of who speaks when and where here, but I believe this is 
uh, the best rendition that it is the Jebusites who are, <clears throat> they are uh, mocking David from the walls. You can't get in here. Uh, the, even, our defenses are so secure that even the blind and the lame will repel you. So they are uh, offering a, um, a challenge to David. And what we see here is an interesting interplay with this, these words, blind and lame. And we see them show up throughout uh, the Scripture in different ways. Blindness usually represents those who are spiritually blind, and lame usually represents those who are spiritually incapable in some uh, context. But here we see a couple of possibilities are suggested, and one is that there was a priestly cult in Jebus where they put the eyes of the priests out so that they were uh, they were blind. And so uh, the one thought is that they lined the walls with blind and lame people uh, to taunt David and uh, to claim that David could not take them. But, of course, uh, David did. Now, there's an interesting interplay on these ideas of lame and blind that we see in uh, in this chapter. One of the uh, characters that will be introduced when we get to uh, chapter 9 is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. Remember, David had entered into a contract or covenant with Jonathan that he would be loyal to Jonathan and bless all of his descendants. And Mephibosheth, we're going to be told the story of how um, how his uh, after after the time of the defeat of Saul and the defeat by the Philistines, that his um, nanny, as it were, is going to take care of him and uh, get him to safety. But uh, she slips or falls along the way, and he breaks his leg, something of that nature, and he is permanently lame and uh, cannot walk. And what we see is the grace of David to the only surviving heir of Saul and Saul's family, the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. And we see a picture that that Mephibosheth is treated in grace and kindness by David. He's invited to come and live in the palace with David and to eat at David's table. It's a picture of, of close of close fellowship. And so he is uh, the lame man, and that occurs at the beginning of the king kingship of David. And if you fast forward to the end of the uh, kingship of Judah, the last king is Zedekiah. Zedekiah it will be captured by the Babylonians, and he will be taken to Babylon, where they will put out his eyes, and he will become blind, and he will eat at the table of Nebuchadnezzar for the duration of his life. So we have this this imagery that brackets the kingship, the lame Mephibosheth at the beginning and the blind Zedekiah at the end. And so then we get into the New Testament and we see Jesus healing the blind and also the lame which pictures the fact that the basic problem, the constitutional problem that man has that man can do nothing about 
can only be cured by the Messiah, only be cured by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is uh, sort of the imagery that this picks up at the at the very uh, beginning of David's David's rule. He will defeat them, and he will do it with uh, with a surprise attack from a quarter that they're completely uh, un- unaware of and uh, unexpected. The parallel passage, and as we go forward in Second Samuel, one of the things I will be bringing out is that there's a parallel with Second Chronicle, or excuse me, First Chronicles. Now let's think a minute about First Chronicles. The difference between First and Second Samuel and Chronicles is that Samuel is written by Samuel and the school of prophets that he founded, and they write the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. Warts and all uh, show all of the problems, and it is a prophetic narrative because it's showing the outworking of the cursing and the blessing promises in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, and showing that God is faithful to his covenant, that when Israel succumbs to idolatry, God is going to take them through the five cycles of discipline. But when they return back to the worship of Yahweh and they turn from their idols, then God is going to, God is going to bless them. So that's the focal point of Samuel. Remember, it's just one book originally. And Kings, just one book originally. They're written before 586, except for maybe the very tail end. Now, after the Babylonian captivity, when the Israelites return, first it's about 45,000, and then the second time it's a little bit more, the first time under... um, <clears throat> under, uh, who was it, Zedekiah. And then they're going to come back, um, and and it's never a huge number that comes back and reestablishes the post-exilic uh, kingdom. They have trouble getting the uh, t- second temple built, and it's not until the ministry of Zechariah and Haggai that really challenge the people to complete the temple. Finally, it's dedicated in 516 uh, B.C. But part of what has to take place during this time is the people need to be reminded of their spiritual heritage and God's promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the priest wrote the records of the people and the history prior to the exile. And that's what Chronicles starts off with. And it just focuses on the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. And it is to focus on what God's plan and purpose for the Davidic descendants in terms of the Davidic covenant ultimately being fulfilled in the arrival of the Messiah. So it allows us to continue to trace the seed, that seed promise that started in Genesis 3.15, goes to Abraham uh, through Isaac, Jacob, and down to Judah, and the descendants of Judah down to David, and then the descendants of David all the way down to the Messiah. And so what I'm going to be doing is going back and forth sometimes just to compare and contrast what we have in 
Second Samuel, and what we have in First Chronicles. So in the First Chronicles account, we read, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem. Notice the emphasis there. It's all of Israel. It's, every, it's the United Kingdom. This is the first military operation of the United Kingdom under under David, because up to this point there's been civil war. Uh, the northern kingdom has been under the oppression of the Philistines. They've been divided. They've been uh, following uh, Ishbosheth and Abner, and now they're united, and they go to Jerusalem, which here we're told is Jebus. Now, Jebus is the name, as we'll see, that is given to it because the group of Canaanites that dwelled there are our Amorites are called Jebusites. And so it is being called Jebus, but its older name, as we'll see, uh, is Jerusalem, even though that name isn't used in Scripture until we get into Joshua. So these are the inhabitants of the land, and they haven't been defeated yet. We'll get into that in just a minute. In verse 5 we read, But the inhabitants of Jebus said, You shall not come in here, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. So here we see that Jerusalem is Jebus. Jerusalem is the stronghold of Zion. Zion is an alternate name uh, for, for Jerusalem, but it is also related to Mount Zion. And so uh, we'll have to understand what Mount Zion is. So we get into some geography. We're going to get into some archaeology tonight. And all of this reminds us that to understand the Bible, we have to understand some basic history. We have to understand some basic geography. We have to have our confidence in Scripture affirmed by realizing that archaeological discoveries clearly uh, back up what these scriptural uh, statements are. So David has to take uh, Jebus. It is a fortified city with a wall around it. They have uh, one water source, which is the Gihon Spring, which is down in the valley, uh, in the Kidron Valley. And they have built a, uh, a tower around the spring to be able to defend it and to bring that water into the city. Uh, so they're, they're self-sufficient and they are protected by these walls. Uh, but David is going to easily, uh, easily defeat them. And how he does that is a stroke of, of good leadership. He says, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. He's going to give them uh, motivation and an incentive clause to uh, go into battle. If you go into battle, if you can get inside the walls and attack the people, then I will make you the general of the army. And that, of course, the one with that ambition is Joab, the son of Zariah, who is David's older sister. So it's his first, uh, is his nephew. And then we're told in summary that David dwelt in the stronghold, our fortress. Therefore, they called it the city of David. But for this, there's another place called the city of David, isn't there? Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is the city of David because that's the city of his birth. But Jerusalem is the city of David because that's the capital city of his kingdom and will continue to be the capital city on into the millennial kingdom 
and eventually into the eternal state and we'll have the new Jerusalem. So there is a history to Jerusalem that goes into the past and then a prophetic uh, future. So what I want to do is look at the significance of Jerusalem. Now you're going to get a little sick maybe of looking at these images, but this is important and I've got a bunch of these to go through so that we understand something about Jerusalem. Here is a a nice artist's depiction on the left. We know that this is a post-Solomonic depiction. Why? How do you know this is after Solomon and not at the time of David? What? That's right. There's a temple there. There's uh, the morning sacrifice and the smoke going up uh, in the air. So this is the Solomonic temple, and then this is the city of David. Now, this surprises people because it doesn't look very big. On the right side, you have a highlighted section uh, of, of the city of David from the model of the first century Jer- uh, of Jerusalem that is at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And when we go to Israel, we always go to these places and take a look at them. Uh, this is the, the city of David at the time of Jesus. But you see it's the same size, and it's not very large. In fact, it's approximately 40 acres in size. So this isn't a large place. Above the city, you have this area that's referred to in Scripture as the offal. And here you see it between this area just at the top of the city of David. This is where the king's palace was located. This area here is the offal. And the offal is... Um, is being excavated today. We'll see those sites when we are in Jerusalem. We uh, just near the southern uh, steps of the temple, which is right here, and then up here is the temple. So you have the offal. The to the east of the city of David, you have a very rugged uh, slope going down to the Kidron Valley, and at the near the base are are the springs, the Gihon Springs. This becomes a place where the kings of Judah will be anointed in the future. That is the water source for the city. You can't survive without water. So that water source is going to have to be protected. They will will see pictures of artist diagrams where they show the towers that were later constructed to protect that, and eventually. When we get to the time of the Assyrian invasion, uh, uh, Hezekiah will have another water tunnel uh, excavated and dug uh, through the city, and it winds through the city down to this area here, which is a Siloam pool. Jesus goes there, and he heals the blind man in John chapter 9. And so all of this uh, connects and is important. So on the east, you have the Kidron Valley, On the west, you have uh, what is sometimes called the Central Valley. It's actually called the Tiropean Valley, which means the Valley of the Cheesemakers. Okay, so that's, and it's filled in now, so you don't even see the existence of that. But there was a valley there in ancient times, and then there's another valley to the further to the west that comes down to the south, and that's called the Valley of Hinnom. Okay, so that's, it's like three fingers. You've got the Kidron Valley, the Central Valley, and then the Valley of Hinnom. Okay, so 
when we look at what the Bible teaches, and these numbers are a little different from what I've given before. In fact, I, I went through several articles. You need to be careful, folks. I'm always surprised. I've made the mistake. Scholars go into print with this mistake. It's not how many times the word Jerusalem appears in the English Bible. It's how many times the word Jerusalem appears in the Hebrew Bible or in the Greek New Testament. And the numbers uh, truly, do, uh, truly do vary. And so it's important, to, uh, it's important to understand that. Let me see here. I have the specifics here in my notes uh, somewhere if I can find them. Well, it's not on that page. should be on that page. Well, it's not. 669 times in the Old Testament, 731 times in the entire Bible. But it's only used 61 times in the New Testament in the Greek. It's used, I think it's 141 times that it is used in the uh, English Bible which I don't know what the difference is unless it's added for clarity in the English Bible in places. Jerusalem is also known by other names such as Salem and Zion. And if you add up all of the different names that are used to refer to Jerusalem, it's used over 980 times in the Bible. It is not mentioned once in the Quran. Now let that sink in a little bit, because Islam wants to make a big deal about this being their mountain. This is central, this is the farthest sanctuary, that's what al-Aqsa means, that that's the farthest sanctuary, but that's a rather uh, nebulous description that you find in the... uh, in the Quran that when uh, Muhammad goes on his night ride to heaven and that his uh, his horse leaps off from the farthest mosque, Al-Aqsa, well, Al-Aqsa Mosque wasn't built for a couple of hundred years after Muhammad died, but this was their attempt to claim this the Mount Moriah as theirs rather than as the Jews. But what we find it throughout the Old Testament is these statements that Jerusalem is important to God, that this is significant. So when we think about this historically, Jerusalem isn't just a, a nice place that David captured and made it his capital, and isn't that wonderful? It's a nice historical fact. But there's a trajectory in the Scripture, which we'll look at in a little bit, that God's plan was always for Jerusalem to be the capital city of the Jewish people in their in their nation, and that this is significant because it doesn't just fade away. Even though uh, this is the city where the people rebelled against God and they murdered His prophets, as Jesus said, and Jesus wept over Jerusalem at the end of Matthew chapter twenty-three and announced that all the buildings there, all the temple buildings, would. Uh, be destroyed, but that it would be restored and there would be a future temple on that very site. God has a plan for Jerusalem and the Jewish people in the future. And after the end of the millennial kingdom, after the great white throne judgment, when the new heavens and new earth are created, then there will be a new city called the New Jerusalem that will be located in that location. 
So this is a plan and purpose that extends into the future. So I want to run through a couple of uh, several verses emphasizing this. Psalm 48.2, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. He's not the king yet. He's not the king until he comes back. But one of the interesting things is you have this monstrosity there. Uh, the, it's called by the Arabs the Haram al-Sharif. This is the Dome of the Rock, or sometimes it's referred to as Omar's Mosque. Dome of the Rock. What's the rock that's under that dome? Well, according to Jewish tradition, that rock goes back to Eden. This is where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil existed. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that is that is their legend. That is their belief. It is the center of where the where the t- temple was located, and this is the dome of the rock is called the foundation stone. This was the rock on which the ark of the covenant rested in the holy of holies in the temple. Now that is absolute fact. The that this is where it was located. And so this uh gives us a historical basis for everything that is said about the tabernacle. But God it wouldn't surprise me if this was the location of the Garden of Eden and that this was the location because God uh this was the location of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God just has this habit of connecting the dots through history of the same location. And that there's something significant about that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, and I'm not going to say that it is, but it wouldn't surprise me because that's how God operates through history. He is a God who is consistent. But this is the location of where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it is more than that. It is, uh, as we'll see in just a minute. In Psalm 78:68, But God chose the tribe of Judah... Mount Zion, which he loved. Now, if you look at this background picture, what you see in the center is the gold dome of the Dome of the Rock. The picture is being taken looking due west from the Mount of Olives. If you look back, see if you can follow the arrow here, if you look back, you see to the left and a little bit above, but to the left of the Dome of the Rock, you see two uh, gray domes located right here. Those are the two domes of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Originally, there were two churches, one church that was built over the site of the crucifixion, one church that was built over the site of the resurrection, and then eventually they were combined under the two roofs and made into one building. If you are standing on the Mount of Olives, you observe that the Dome of the Rock has been built so that it is higher than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a statement that Islam is superior to Christianity. And inside the Dome of the Rock, it's covered with uh, the graffiti in mosaic of numerous verses from the Quran, all of which deny the deity and messiahship of Jesus. 
So it is a theological statement about the superiority of Islam over Christianity, and it is built on the site of the temple, which is again showing that they have defeated the God of the Jews, and they are superior to the God of the Jews. And so the whole thing is a blasphemous monstrosity of hate that has been established by Islam. Of course, they want to call anybody who says what I just said an Islamophobe, but that denies truth and denies history. Psalm 132.13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is where the Lord has chosen to put his name and to dwell between the cherubs and the temple. So here you see this is the old city of David, as it was at the time of David. This is the uh, offal here, and then above, this is the temple. Psalm 133.3, it is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Salvation is grounded on that temple mount, and we'll get there. Isaiah 59.20, the Redeemer will come to Zion. See, that's part of the prophecy. He comes to Zion, the city of Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. And then in the Mishnah, in Sukkah 51b, the rabbis wrote, whoever has not seen Jerusalem in its splendor has never seen a beautiful city. It was the temple was considered the eighth wonder of the ancient world. Ezekiel 5.5 5 says that Jerusalem is the center of the earth, theologically, in God's plan, not geographically. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. Psalm 87.2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. This is the Zion gate going into the old city, going into the Jewish quarter. Massive amount of fighting took place here in the War for Independence in 1948 as the forces of, uh, of the Israelis tried to breach the wall and get inside to rescue those who were trapped inside uh, by the Arab forces. And when you go there, you can just see that the whole wall is just pockmarked with uh, bullet holes. And again, there was fighting there in the 67 war. Psalm 76.2 says, In Salem, another name, this is the second use of Salem, one in Matthew, I mean in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 14, and then here in Psalm 76.2, it's referred to simply as Salem, also is his tabernacle. Interesting Hebrew word. It's not Mishkan, for the dwelling place of God, it is the word for a lion's den or lair. In Salem also is his lair. The lion of Judah is the allusion there. And his dwelling place in Zion. So the first time we run into the city of Zion, the city of Salem in the scripture, the first mention of the city that is known as Jerusalem is in Genesis chapter 14. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, and we're going to work our way through some key passages in the scripture talking about what happens in Jerusalem. First of all, we have this episode in Genesis chapter 14, 
What happened earlier is that there is a coalition of kings that come in from the east. There are four kings who come against the five kings of the five cities of the plain. Now this is, remember, this is when Abraham has come into the land at the beginning. Initially he is with his nephew Lot and their flocks and their herds are kept together. Their men eventually begin to bicker among each other and fight among each other. And so Abraham for peace says, very graciously, you pick the land you want to go to. And so Lot looks down in the valley of the Jordan, the valley of the what is now known as the Dead Sea, and the scripture says it was beautiful and well watered as all the land down to Zoar, all the land down to Egypt. All of that is well watered. It's not well watered today, but it was then. It was lush. It was beautiful. It was the most gorgeous area of this part of the world. And so that's where Lot went. And then these four kings come in from the east, and they invade down through the probably the east side of the Dead Sea, and they capture people, they take them as slaves, they take their plunder, they take everything that they have, and they circle around the southern part of the Dead Sea and up up the west side of the Dead Sea, and they head north. Well, when Abraham learned about that, he is going to go rescue his nephew Lot, and he's going to fulfill part of that Abrahamic covenant. He's going to be a blessing to all of those. He's going to rescue everyone, uh, taking his uh, 318 servants who function as a small trained militia force, and they will defeat those four kings in a surprise attack, and then he will recover all of the plunder, all of the booty, and all of those who are taken as slaves. And when he comes south, the we're told in verse uh, 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot, who's really his nephew, Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And then something interesting, verse 17, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevah, which is the king's valley, which is, uh, many think that is uh, the Kidron Valley. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. Now, so here's the scene. You have the king of Sodom, this perverse city, and he's coming out and he's going to greet this righteous, God fearing Abraham. And then we're told Melchizedek, the king of Salem. So his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Melech is, Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Tzedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. He's the king of righteousness or the righteous king. That is a title given him. That's not his name. He is the righteous king of Salem, and he brings out bread and wine. Now, this isn't communion. Some people think that, but it's not communion. It's just typical of a Middle Eastern hospitality then is now. And he is the priest of the God Most High. So this is Melchizedek. He's not the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ either. We, I covered that in, when we studied this in Hebrews. He is possibly, according to Jewish legend once again, and if you work out the ages of all the descendants of the sons of Noah and everything, Shem is still alive. And the, according to Jewish legend, Shem, the father of the 
ultimately the uh, the Hebrews and of Abraham, Shem is, would still have been alive. Their legend is that Melchizedek was Shem, and that could be possible. And in which case, here we're having a dispensational transfer from Gentiles to the first Jew. So that I think is is more. Uh, is 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 likely. I, I, you can't say for sure. But he comes out and he pronounces a blessing on Abraham. He said, "Blessed be a- Abraham, Avram, of El Elyon." This is his name and title for God, God the Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then we're told, and Abram gave him a tithe of all. Now, a lot of people you'll hear over the years will say, this is a great passage for tithing. See, it's before the law, so everybody should tithe. Wait a minute. Nothing of which Avram is tithing belongs to him. Nobody ever points that out. This is the captured booty that belongs to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains. He is giving him a tithe of the booty that he has recovered, and it actually belongs to these other people, but he is recognizing that it is God that gave him the victory, and so this goes as a tribute and a gift to God. So this is the first mention of Salem. It seems to be a righteous city at this point, and they have a righteous king who is a king-priest, who rules over this small uh, city of Salem. The next time that we have a reference to this geographical location comes in Genesis chapter 22. Turn over to Genesis chapter 22. A lot has happened in Abram's life over these uh, years from Genesis chapter 14 to 22, and now he has an adult son by the name of Yitzhak, Isaac, and he is the promised seed, and the Lord has blessed Abram, Abraham through him, and this is the one through whom the blessing of the covenant will come, the promised, the promised seed. And then God gives him instructions in Genesis 22.2. He says, take now your son, your only son. See, that's a picture of who? Jesus, the only begotten son of God. This is Isaac, Yitzhak, your only son, your son, your only son, the one whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. Moriah is a hill. A Moriah is a mountain, Mount Moriah. And he will go there and he is instructed to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, this is one of I always, since I was a kid, I remember hearing uh, uh, counselors and teachers t- tell this story around the campfire, Camp Penile, many, many times, that this is a great picture of salvation. Abraham takes Isaac. He trusts the Lord. Hebrews tells us that he understood resurrection by this point. He understood that God was going to fulfill his promise through Isaac. So this nonsense that comes along that he was going to murder his son it t- is ex- it's so far from the truth, but it, 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 it's the only way an unbeliever can explain it because they just don't have the, 
the faith and the doctrine to understand what's going on in Abraham's head. Abraham knows that God finally has become convinced that this is the one God will fulfill his promises through, and no matter what happens, God is true to his word, and he will fulfill the promise through, through uh, Isaac, and that even if I kill Isaac because God tells me, I know that God will raise him from the dead, and God will fulfill his promise through them. So he knows he's not going to kill He really won't kill him. Even if he does kill him, he will be raised from the dead. And so he prepares, he takes a sacrificial knife, he lays Isaac out. And this is a great act of faith on Isaac's part as well. Because he must understand what's going on because he's not fighting his dad. And Abraham raises the knife and then the angel of the Lord stops him and praises him for his faith and his trust, reasserts the, um, the Abrahamic covenant at this point, and then the Lord provides a substitute. There is a ram, as in the picture there, who is caught uh, in the thicket by its horns, and God, it's the picture of how God provides the substitute for us. It is the perfect picture of substitutionary redemption, that God is going to provide the animal uh, sacrifice who will die in the place of Yitzhak. And so Abraham calls the name of this place Yahweh Jireh in the Hebrew. It means the Lord will provide. And this is on what is called the Mount of the Lord, Genesis twenty-two fourteen. In the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That is Mount Moriah. We'll come back to that in a minute. The next time we have Jerusalem mentioned, and this is among the first times that Jerusalem is mentioned, is in Joshua. The first time the name Jerusalem is given is in the list of cities that are conquered by Joshua. And uh, and in Joshua 15, we're told that, and this is a summary statement, that is for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So when Joshua was written, what had happened is the Jebusites still maintained control. Now we'll find out in Judges that they were actually defeated by Judah but they couldn't hold it, and the Jebusites took the city back. And so then there's this compromise that occurs, and Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah to this day, which is before the events that occur at the early part of, of the book of Judges and before the time of David, of course. Now, the next time we see it mentioned, we see it mentioned in Judges 1.8, because in In Joshua, Joshua talks about the king of Salem at this time is known as Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek. Remind you of another name? Melchizedek. Okay? So this is the, he's called the Lord of Righteousness, but he's not righteous. Okay? He is a pagan Canaanite king, and he was a a butcher. And the uh, tribe of Judah is finally able to uh, defeat him. 
And when they do, they cut off his thumbs and his toes. That's showing that they're beginning to act like pagans. That's in uh, Judges 1.8. And they, they're beginning to act like pagans. The reason you cut off, and, and, and Adonai Bezek says, well, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. That is the policy of disarmament. You can't hold a sword. You can't hold a club. You can't throw a spear. You can't fight. You can't run if you don't have big toes and you don't have a thumb. So that is how you disarmed the enemy. You took away their ability uh, to fight. And so after the description of that and the defeat of Adonai Bezek, uh, we're told in verse 7, then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children, verse 8, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So they do defeat it. But when you get down to verse 21, we read, but the children of Benjamin, see this, technically it was in the tribal allotment for Benjamin. The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So you have this compromise that occurs. That's what Judges 1 uh, ends up showing us is that they started off great, then they compromised. They didn't want to annihilate all of the inhabitants of the land, all of the Canaanites. And so then they began to compromise, live together, assimilate, and they became more pagan than the pagan Canaanites by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges. And that's the next time we're going to see Jerusalem mentioned, and that's in Judges chapter 19. So all of this is a picture of how Jerusalem goes from a city of a righteous king worshiping El Elyon in Genesis 14 to becoming a horrible, abusive, uh, sexually perverse city under the Jebusites worthy of their destruction. So in Judges chapter 19, we have that uh, remarkable story of the Levites' concubine. And you remember the story that there's a Levite who lives in the mountains of Ephraim. He goes and he uh, acquires a concubine from Bethlehem. And then they are going to head back uh, to, the, to Samaria. And as they uh, head back to Samaria, it's going late in the day, uh, on the fourth day, and they are running out of daylight and they need to find a place to rest. And so in verse um, uh, verse 9, we're told, they recognize the day is drawing toward evening, and they're near Jebus. In verse 10, we read, However, the man was not willing to spend that night in Jebus because of their reputation, because of their perversity. And so he rose and departed or that was one city, and then he rose and departed, came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem, and with him were the two saddled donkeys, his concubine was with him, and they were near Jebus, the day was spent, and they're saying, come, let's stay there, and his master said, we'll not turn aside here to the city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel, we'll go to Gibeah, and at Gibeah, it's as bad as Sodom, which shows that the Israelites have become as pagan as the Canaanites. And so this is the picture there to be destroyed by Israel under the uh, command of God to 
uh, completely annihilate all the inhabitants of the land. And that's the background for understanding what what David is doing. He understands he has to finish the conquest of the land. That's his job as Messiah. The job of the Messiah is to defeat the enemies of God and God's people. That's what Jesus does at the cross. He defeats sin. He pays the penalty for sin. This is the strategic victory over Satan. And Satan is defeated at the cross even though he continues to fight the battle. His doom is sealed as the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, reflects. His doom is certain. His doom is sealed because the victory uh, took place at the cross. And so David recognizes that he needs to uh, take uh, Jebus, take Jerusalem, and that this is the Lord's uh, going to be the Lord's city. Now, here's a map for you showing these three hills or mountains in Jerusalem. Here's the Mount of Olives. There's a valley separating it from Mount Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount and where the Temple Mount is. The Temple Mount is on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed. All of this happens in the same location. And then the next mountain over is Mount Zion. Here's the Central Valley or the uh, Terapian Valley. Here is the Valley of, of Gehenna. And then this, of course, on the east side, is the Valley of uh, the Kidron Valley. So David says, whoever climbs up by way of the water gate and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. This became sort of a, a mocking proverb in Israel. The word there, though, that is translated water shaft is in the Hebrew, senor, which is sometimes translated channel. So I've listened to archaeologists dealing with the various alternatives. Some of them say it means like a pipe or a water pipe or a tube. And so that has led them to uh, certain conclusions. So this becomes an issue understanding what happens here uh, historically. And so here's a map to give us an idea of Jerusalem. This is modern Jerusalem. You have the old city here. Here is, in this rectangle here, this is the Temple Mount. This is the Haram es Sharif, which is the location of the Dome of the Rock. Just to its south, you have this little finger that heads south. This is the city of David. See how small it is compared to the size of the Temple Mount compound up here? Uh, that is just larger than the old city of David. To the right here, the east, you have the Kidron Valley. Uh, you see that there's no mention of a middle valley anymore. And then over here is the Hinnom Valley. Here's an artist's depiction of what Jebus looked like at the time of David. You have a walled city. It goes from a higher elevation down. Over here you have a, a little fortress that's built around the Gihon Spring to protect it and so that the city, the dwellers of the city have, have water. Uh, this depicts the palace of David that is built little later in this chapter, and, and there's no, this is the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite up here, and this will eventually become the site of the Temple Mount. 
So this gives you an idea of what it uh, was similar to in reality at the time of David. This takes us back to that picture from the Jerusalem model over at the uh, uh, Israel Museum. It's highlighted so that you can see it. You have the Central Valley, Gahon Springs over here. This is the area where uh, that tower would be located. Uh, this is where the Palace of David would have been located, the offal, and then up here, Mount Moriah and the temple. Now here is an overhead, an aerial shot today, and you can see how large, up here in the upper left corner, how large the compound is for around the temple mount. Those walls aren't the walls that were there at the time of Jesus, but they're built on top of them. Okay, so that outlines those walls. The lower stones are all from the Herodian time period, and the upper stones are uh, from the time that it uh, it is uh, rebuilt by uh, the Arabs in the, I believe it's in the 16th century. You have the Kedron Valley coming down through here. Up here you see the Jewish cemetery on the Mount of Olives. Uh, down here outlined in red is the old city of David. See how small it is? That always surprises people when they come to Jerusalem. Here's another shot. This is it. You see a highway or a road going up here. That's on the west side. It just loops down here. This is it. All It's surrounded by a Silwan, which is an Arab, an Arab village. Up here you have the uh, Temple Mount, and over here the Kidron Valley. Just to give you that idea, this is the reverse shot looking down the hill. What I always like to point out is you can usually see a flag flying uh, from right, uh, right up here on this ridge. Now this is where the UN headquarters is located. Now this story doesn't tell you that God has a, a sense of humor. The UN built their headquarters on top of this hill. Now, according to tradition, this is the site where Solomon met with his counselors, not Solomon, but Rehoboam met with his counselors who convinced him that he needed to resist the ten northern tribes and to, um, uh, to increase their taxation. So it is called the Hill of Evil Counsel. That's almost worth the price of going to Israel to see that. Okay, so here we have the artist's depiction here of the old city of David. Over here you have an outline of the city of David. There are basically three tunnels. The blue tunnel we're not concerned with because this is the tunnel of he that Hezekiah built that's mentioned in Second Chronicles 32.20. The yellow right here is where there is a vertical shaft that was discovered in 1868 by Captain Charles Warren, who was a, a British soldier who was detailed to the Palestinian Exploration Fund, and he did a number of archaeological discoveries there, and it's a vertical shaft, but it's part of the water system that goes to what is called the Old Canaanite Tunnel, which was probably preceded um, the Jebusites and ran from the Gihon Spring again down to Siloam Pool. That 
upper part of that Canaanite tunnel uh, connects to where Warren's shaft is. But current, many people will tell you it's Warren's shaft. The problem is that in the late 1990s, there were several studies done by archaeologists there that that showed that the um, that the floor of the Canaanite tunnel wasn't lowered until the 8th century BC. That Warren shaft was a natural uh, a natural forming shaft in the rock, and that this wasn't uncovered until they lowered the floor of the old Canaanite tunnel in the 8th century. So uh, that seems to not be the tunnel here. Here's another depiction. Here's this old uh, tunnel that connects to the um, Canaanite tunnel, which isn't pictured here. The blue line is the Hezekiah's tunnel, and this vertical line right here, that's Warren's uh, shaft. And so there'll be many who say that's the shaft that that Joab went up that shaft and then up this tunnel, and that's possible. But there were so many different vertical shafts because what they did was they built this system in the Jebusites where the the, um, the water was taken into the city through these these tunnels. And what Joab does is he takes one of these and he comes up it with his men, and suddenly they're inside the walls, they're inside the city, and it they instantly are able to defeat it. Here's another picture showing this vertical shaft here that was discovered by Charles Warren. Here's the horizontal tunnel that was used as part of the water system uh, even earlier, and then down here is the location of the Gihon Spring. It's kind of fascinating. They're discovering so much every year uh, related to this archaeologically. We're told then in Second Chronicles 3.1, after David, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That connects it. Where did Abraham take Isaac? To Mount Moriah. Where does Solomon build the temple? According to the scripture, on Mount Moriah. This is the story of grace and the story of God's salvation. The result is that God gives David the city of Zion because God has a greater plan for this location. It all fits within his plan. It's not just circumstantial that they end up in the same place. And so uh, Joab will take his men. They'll go up through one of these water shafts into the city and defeat it. And the shafts are there. So archaeology has validated what the scripture says. And so we're told in verse 9, Then David dwelt in the stronghold, our fortress, and called it the city of David. And he built all around from the Milo and inward. Now, what's the Milo? Here's this artist's depiction. It's very rugged. And what happened is that they had to build up the slopes on the edges between the, the houses and the, and the wall that's the Milo, that is building up and terracing the area so that uh, they could build houses there. And this is what uh, we fi- we've discovered archaeologically in relation, to the, uh, in relation to the palace of David. So Second Chronicles 11.8 affirms that. And we're told in verse 10, So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. 
This is God who gives him the city. It is God who gives him the victory. And that same God who gave him the victory, it's all part of God's plan of salvation. And the same thing happens with us. God gives us the victory over sin. He gives us victory over death through the resurrection of Christ. And all of this fits together and should strengthen our faith tremendously. Let's close in prayer. Next time we'll come back. Didn't have time to get to the palace information. That's been discovered recently, and we have some, I have some great uh, photos of that as well. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that your plan of salvation works itself out in many different ways through these different victories and through the different uh, historical events around Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is the center of your plan of salvation. It is where our Lord Jesus Christ gave us the strategic victory of the cross. It is where he defeated uh, sin and he paid the penalty of sin and completed that payment so that we could have salvation. It is where the great strategic battle of all human history was fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that our faith might be strengthened and encouraged with this study, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.